Christians and culture. We're going to be looking, instead of looking at New Testament, we're going to be looking at the Old Testament and seeing how the believers in the Old Testament responded to a life in which they were not the majority. Yesterday, my wife, Chris, was getting her nails done. And she was interacting with a lady. She shared that she was a school teacher and taught first grade. And pretty soon they were going back and forth as she was uh, sitting there. And, and, and the lady shared with, with Chris that she had gone to a Christian school in Indiana and had bussed down on weekends to the church. And as Chris listened to her talk, Chris could tell quickly that it was a pretty negative experience. And eventually, it was very clear that this young lady had no desire whatsoever to do any, have anything to do with Christianity as she shared her experience in the school and in the church. And it broke Chris's heart. And all around us, I think we see that type of a thing. Ed Stetzer, the interim teaching pastor at Moody Church, distinguished chair at Wheaton College, writes that we are now faced with cultural changes that will test the resolve of Christians who are becoming increasingly marginalized, and in some cases despised for their beliefs and values. He goes on, he talks about the, the nuns, not the Catholic nuns, but N-O-N-E-S, this term that's used for those who identify as atheist or agnostic or just who have no um, affiliation with a religion. And talks about how one in four Americans are now considered nuns. One in four. One in five Americans, or 18%, um, raised in a faith and yet now claim no religious affiliation. And like this young lady that Chris was talking with yesterday, many left the church, perceived Christians as finger-pointing and self-righteous, people who are quick to judge others, but don't judge themselves. And in the church, they experienced backbiting and envy and pride and materialism. Sessler goes on and he says, we're faced with three options. We can assimilate into the culture. We can isolate ourselves from culture. Or we can engage. Of course, concerning the gospel, we only have one choice. We must engage. If we were to assimilate, we would be offering nothing to those other than what the culture offers already broken and without hope. So how? How can we be witnesses in the world around us? How do we relate to society? We're not the first ones who begin to see that culture change where we're no longer the majority. Look around the world. Look in the Middle East. Look in various spots, and you'll see that we have much more of a comfortable situation than many today. But in this series, we're going to be looking today at Jeremiah, which gives a good background to Daniel. We'll be going through Daniel and 
Jonah and 1 Kings, looking to learn some examples of how to interact as they were given instruction. How do we relate in this world around us? We need to remember that, that we're foreigners, we're exiles, our home is not here. We certainly aren't like Israel in the promised land. We're more like Israel in exile. We're to be humble as we reach out to the world around us. We can't isolate ourselves. I think we see that example so clearly today in Jeremiah 29. We'll discover, I think, today some profound insights into how God deals with His children and how He wants us and what He expects from us. Well, the first three verses give us a little bit of the context and the background, so let's begin reading there. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, to the priests, to the prophets, and to all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, and the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the metal workers, had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Eliza, the son of Shaphan and Gemara, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, the king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. We see this letter sent from Jeremiah to the people in Babylon. Just a little more information about that background. If you remember, there were three deportations from Jerusalem into Babylon. The first one was in 605 B.C., and we think that's when Daniel, if you remember Daniel and his friends, we think that's when they were deported. The second one is 597, and that's the background for Jeremiah 29. The third one was 11 years later, and that's in 586, after for two years, Nebuchadnezzar had kind of blocked the entrance into Jerusalem, and there was a famine, and Jerusalem fell. And that's when the walls were torn down, the the, um, temple was burned, and basically everyone removed. Second Kings 24 talks about the deportation and it says that he, Nebuchadnezzar, carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest of the land. None remained except the poorest of the land. This shows you the extent of the deportations, each bad. The Babylonians were not nice people. They were ruthless. Babylon was the most powerful nation in the land, and oftentimes they would put a pile of skulls in the center plaza. So in case people were thinking about rebelling, they would know to do otherwise. You may say, well, why did God take his people? Why do you allow his people from Judah to be taken to this evil land of Babylon? 
to look, study history, we'll see that the people of Judah had turned away from God. When God sent prophets, they ignored them, sometimes killing them. They ignored God's word. Finally, God said, enough, enough. He raised up Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, as an instrument of judgment against Judah. And all that kind of gives you a background of, of Jeremiah 29, a pivotal chapter that helps us to understand how God deals with his people and what he expects of us. So again, God warned Judah over and over and over of coming judgment. But they didn't listen. Prophet after prophet, they paid no heed. Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. <laughs> he was even thrown in a pit because I didn't like him. Finally, God says, Jeremiah, do not pray for them. I will not listen. I will not listen. So we can see the spiritual climate of Judah in that time period. But now it's 597, as I said, around that time period. Thousands of Jews are now in Babylon. It's impossible for us to know how they felt. They're in Babylon. Babylon. The place that was the center of evil in their minds. A place of violence and idolatry and and cruelty. But, if you study the history of Israel and Judah, you'll find that idolatry was very attractive to the Jewish people. Why do they constantly flirt with idolatry? Well, idolatry encouraged sexual permissiveness of all kinds. Shrines were built on every hill. God says, on every high hill and under every green tree, you have bowed down like a whore, like a prostitute. Prostitution, homosexuality, every form of perversion was practiced. And the people liked it. They loved it. And orgies were common. All these idols proved to be bitter and destructive. It seems that the freedom that they wanted did not come, and they yet refused to turn away from these idols that broke their lives. This led them into Babylon. It's against this backdrop that we're at Jeremiah 29. Again, this contains a letter from Jeremiah, the prophet, written to the people in Babylon. For some reason, we don't know why, Jeremiah was left in Jerusalem. It was a personal letter from God to his people. Verses 4 through 7, we see about three things that God tells Israel to do. Let's read. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on behalf, on its behalf, 
explain its welfare, you will find your welfare. God clearly takes responsibility for sending the Jews to Babylon. It's huge. I don't think we can overstate the importance as we look at this passage. Everything that God is going to say depends on grasping this truth. Verse 4 there says, To all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. The NIV says, All the exiles I carried. Strange as it may seem, the Jews were in Babylon ultimately because that's where they needed to be. Their rebellion was so deep that that was the only way to break that sin. Only radical surgery to remove that cancer of idolatry. The Jews were in Babylon as a judgment, as discipline. But now God wants to use them as they're living there. And he gives instructions to the Jewish people there in exile. And as you think about what he says, remember, the Jewish people felt humiliated. They felt trapped in this land that they didn't know anything about and didn't want to be there. They felt judged and condemned and abandoned by God. And they were the laughingstock of all the nations. Imagine the reaction to Jeremiah's prophecy when it was read in the, the, the ghetto, say to speak, of Babylon. Here's God's people. They were languishing over being captive, maybe complaining about their fate, maybe complaining about the crime rate there in that wretched Babylonian school system. What was their response? God says, you're going to be here for 70 years. He says, first he says, establish a presence. Make a difference in the community. Two ways. Settle down. Build a house. And live in them. Plant gardens. And eat their produce. You're going to be here for 70 years. Don't, don't live in tents. Or, or don't rent. Build a house. Live in them. Plant gardens. Eat produce. And then secondly, in verse 6, he says, take wives and have sons and daughters. And then he goes on and says, and give your children in marriage so you can have grandchildren. Don't decrease. Increase. Because you're going back. You're going back. They may have wanted God to say something like this. My children, I know you're living in, in, in Babylon. Sit tight. Stay out of trouble. Do your time. And before you know it, you'll be back home. But that's not what God said. He didn't say that. His advice was quite different. Establish your presence. Build homes. Build strong families. Let your children get married. Have grandchildren. You see, God's plan in all of this, to change this city and this country, was to move these Jewish people right dab smack in the center of the city. Right in the midst of all of these people. 
It's not what they wanted. <laughs> That's how God changes people and places. The first he says to them is he's giving instructions, establish your presence. Next, he says, seek the peace, seek the welfare of the city. Verse 7 and 8, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. The, the New Living Trans, Translation says, work for the peace and the prosperity. Do you see there that work, work for? It's not just sitting back. They're seeking to establish the welfare of the city. Welfare carries with it the idea of prosperity and well-being, wholeness, blessing. And shalom means order and harmony, happiness. Basically saying be, be good neighbors. Become servants. Show hospitality. Build relationships. Pay your taxes. God tells the Jews, your welfare is connected with the city's welfare. And then thirdly, after saying, establish your presence, pray for peace and welfare. Third, pray for the prosperity of the city. He says in verse 7 and 8, I believe, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you'll find your welfare. I'm sure that God's instructions must have shocked the Jewish people. Remember, they were God's chosen people. And Babylon was this cruel, heathen land. Their thoughts must have been are we really supposed to pray for Babylon? They destroyed our home. They killed our parents. They killed our brothers and sisters, our family. Pray for these people who uprooted us and made us travel 800 miles. Pray for people who stole our country. Pray for their blessing. It's hard, isn't it, to pray for our enemies? And yet God said, pray. Pray for their blessing. After giving the instructions for living there in Babylon, Jeremiah warns of false prophets. Verses 8 and 9, we see Jeremiah's warning of false prophets. But thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets or your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it's a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. In Jeremiah 28, one chapter prior to 29, a prophet named Hananiah had made a bold prediction. In the midst of being told that they were there for 70 years, he says, Two years, two years, and the king and all the Jewish people and all the gold and silver will be returned. Pretty soon, the exiles heard this. Forget 70 years, two years, 24 months. 
We can make it. I can do 24. It sounded good, didn't it? It sounded good. Church, if you think about it, has been tempted over the years to, to hear things that sound good. It's very seductive. I think of the church in Europe and all the empty church buildings. All the empty church buildings because they bought in to the lies, to the false statements. They, they tied the gospel witness into political correctness, to submission to culture, and willingness to unite with other religions in a banner of tolerance and love. Think of a few years ago. You remember the shack? shack? I read it. It sounded so good because it offered God in a way for the oppressed and for those who were hurting. And people loved it. I think it even became a movie. Of course, many said his theology is bad. He wrote a book. The author, Young, wrote a book. Lies we believe about God. Young denies almost every doctrine of historic Christianity, including original sin, the sovereignty of God, Christ's sacrifice for sinners, the existence of eternal hell, and affirms universalism, the belief that we'll all be saved. We see a, that feel-good book. It impacts our thinking. The term hyper-grace today is, a, is a, a new wave of teaching that's emphasizing the grace of God to the exclusion of vital doctrines such as God's wrath and repentance and confession of sin. Basically, the hyper-grace teaching is that we're not bound by Jesus' teaching. We're not responsible for our sin because of grace. It perverts the grace of God into a license to sin, immorality, Jude. It's a good example of mixing truth with error. When we emphasize grace to the exclusion of God's discipline and judgment, when we speak of heaven and never mention hell, we treat mortal sins lightly. In other words, we don't deal with them very strongly. We don't deal with them in the way we should. One more false doctrine that we see today so often that we need to be aware of is this movement across evangelical Christianity that says, my preference for sex is acceptable no matter what God's Word says. My preference. Sex before marriage, promiscuity, living together, cohabitation, homosexuality, just sexual immorality in any type. It's, it's okay. It's okay. We must counter these widespread notions that people who accept that lifestyle are more loving and have the high moral road. Too often they take words like unity and, and, and love and acceptance and inclusion in a wrong way. We're forgetting that we have a God who is tolerant. He's patient. He's loving. But if we continue in our sins, as Judah did, he deals with us. And it's no more loving to tell someone 
that their lifestyle is okay than it is to say to a person who has cancer that they've got a cold because we aren't dealing with the issues. Well, after confronting the issue there of the, the false teaching, in verses 10 and 11, Jeremiah reminds the people of God's promises, verses 10 and 11. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. I got a feeling if many of us know a verse from Jeremiah, Verse 11 is it. It's so well known. We sing it. We have learned it. We memorized it in so many different ways. And I, and I love, though, verse 10, how, how specific this promise is. It says, 70 years when you come back. It's a generation. 70 years. No more. You come back. And, 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 I, and I love just how you, you see God's grace. I will come. He says that he's the one who carried them there. He says, I will come, and I will bring you back. I will bring you back. So often, God's purposes and ours are rarely the same. We tend to look at life through our, our own prisms, right? We, we see what we want, what we think is best what makes sense to us, maybe what we want for our children. But God's plans are different. And that 70 years is so very clear that God had a purpose and a plan. And it was, would be accomplished in that time period. And then he brought the Jewish people back. The exiles were there under discipline for idolatry. They were there for their own Spiritual growth. They, they needed to be there. But the Babylonians, they needed to hear the love of God and the grace of God. And so the Babylonians were unconsciously serving God's purposes. And the exiles living there were serving God in a way that they had imagined. Too often, God is working in our lives and he's using the rough, tough, hard times in our lives in ways that we don't see and don't understand. Well, verse 11, that verse that we all love so much, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. God doesn't look at our circumstances in a way that, that we do. You may not like where you are today. You may want to be in a different job. You may want to move somewhere else. You may be in a bad spot, maybe because of bad choices you made. And yet God, I think, is saying to us, I've got you where I want you. Just as he had the exiles where they need to be, he has us where he wants us. He wants to be working in our lives and using us. God knows his plans, and he'll carry them out. I love the promises 
for the church in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, he says that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. God had a plan. He chose us before the foundation of the world. He predestined us to adoption, verse 5, according to purpose of his will. Verse 11, in him we obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. You see, God's hand in life, in our life as a church, but God accomplished much in those 70 years. And I'm not going to go into all the details because we're going to be going into Daniel. But I'll just mention a, a, a couple of things here for us to, to, to think about. The grip of idolatry was finally broken. Sure, within the hearts there are those struggles, but, but Baal worship was eradicated. Secondly, God established a presence there in Babylon. God raised up people like Daniel and his friends who had powerful impact. Nebuchadnezzar, that ruthless, tough, hard pagan, may well have put his faith in God. And the Jews lived in peace. They're in Babylon. It's a matter of, of, of history that once they were there, once they were settled down, that the Babylonians treated them reasonably well, gave them freedom to develop their own community. So we see these people, these Jewish exiles, pulled away from their home. They had no idea what God was doing. They were hurting. <laughs> they felt abandoned. And yet they didn't know what God wanted to do with them and through them. And so we look at our own lives today. How can we impact the culture around us? I think first it would be, be good neighbors. God's saying to us today in Chicago, be a servant. I think maybe he says, uh, clean your sidewalk. And maybe sometimes clean your neighbor's sidewalk. Be servants. Show hospitality. Build relationships. Pay your taxes. And maybe for some of you, consider running for alderman. Get involved. Establish a presence. Pray for the welfare. Pray for the city. Pray for its economy. Pray for the mayor and the alderman. Pray for God's blessings. Pray for the schools and for the teachers. Pray for the great spiritual needs. Pray for the churches and for the pastors and the leadership that we would stick close to God's word. That we'd be able to understand and clearly hold forth to God's word. Pray and remember that in Chicago's welfare, we find our welfare. Do you ever wonder what kind of future you're leaving your kids? I confess, there have been times when I look at the world and I say, man, I hate I'm leaving Zach and Jared in this situation. I think that we all struggle with that next generation and that generation after that. 
our children and our grandchildren. And, and I know people who have told me personally, we're not having kids. We're not having kids in this culture. But that's not what God says. God tells the Jewish people, those exiles in Babylon, he says, bloom where you planted. Go ahead. Put your roots down. Buy some land. Build a house. Plant a garden. Go into business. Build a community. Remember, for so many years, being transplanted from the cotton fields of Alabama, I would go home and I would miss it so much. And I, would, and I still love the green grass and, and, and the trees and, and all that. You know, over time, Chicago's become home. It's become home. I love it. I love it. I want the best for Chicago. Do you love Chicago? Do you love the people? God says, establish your presence, church. Establish your presence. I love Dr. Christopher Yuan, who's a professor at Moody Bible Institute, and he writes, My perception as a gay man, before I came to Christ, was that Christians thought gays and lesbians deserved a hotter place in hell, and that Jesus had to hang on the cross a little bit longer for the sin of same-sex relationships. That's sad, isn't it? He says, that's what that most non-believers think. Dr. Yuan is such a, he does such a great job in helping people, helping the church to minister in these areas. And, and, and he says, should we warn others of the dangers of sin? Of course we should. But it's how we go about doing it. I think that we must first humbly recognize and repent of our own sinfulness. Mark chapter 7, verses 21, 22, 23 says, For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, Slander, pride, foolishness, all of these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. If we're honest, except for the Spirit of God controlling us, it's us, isn't it? And so as we talk and as we interact with people, beware of God's grace in saving us. God has placed us here in the city. Logan Square. Humboldt Park. West Town. Rooker Park. Portage Park. He's placed us here. He wants us to be a light. Just as he wanted the Jews to be that light in Babylon. And as we work through controversial moral issues, it's important to bear in mind the main goal is not to persuade someone to change their behavior. 
That's not our goal. I mean, that's the Spirit of God's goal, right? He does that. We don't do that. It's to tear down the barriers. Tear down the barriers like that young woman that my wife was talking to. Tear down those barriers that keep someone from wanting to become a Christian. Dr. Christopher Young again says, A robust theology cannot be built on what we are not allowed to do. For Christian, life is much more than the avoidance of sinful behavior. If scriptural prohibitions are the only lens through which we see things, then we may well miss the gospel. No matter who we're addressing or what the moral issue is that the person's struggling with, they first need to hear the gospel and to experience the love of God. The most important question that they can ever answer is do they have a relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ for eternity? Do they have that relationship? with God, through Jesus Christ. The main reason we address these moral issues is that they become a barrier even to hearing the message of God. I think people are, from every direction, people are, are hit with rhetoric telling them that the Bible is hateful and is hurtful, it's narrow, and it's negative. And while it's crucial that we are clear about biblical teaching on sin, the context must be an overall positive message. That Christianity alone gives the basis for a high view and value of life. Only Christianity is a gift from God. We dare not do away with what God's Word says. I love what one theologian wrote describing liberal Christianity. This is how he described it. He says, It is a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. You hear that? I think it's pretty powerful. One more time. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through administrations of a Christ without a cross. You see, it's so easy to do away with these things, these, these, these edges that cut against culture. We dare not. We dare not. But we dare not. Reach out in anger and bitterness. We must show the love of Jesus Christ. We, we, we need so much to work in drawing the people who need Christ to understand a biblical vision of who God is and the life that we have in Him. You and I are here where we are. We've been placed here my God, he's calling us to not just sit back, not to relax, not to kind of finish your time out. He's saying establish your presence. 
Build a house. Have a home. Have children. Have a family. Build the community. Secondly, to work for the welfare of the city and to pray for the city. Let's pray.